and the bass will always be a core part of what I do. That's the thing though. The bass is always going to be there, a solo voice, a melodic part, like a supportive role, all of the above. The bass is going to be in the foreground in the mix. <laughs> so. Welcome to episode 86 of the Bass Shed podcast. My name is Ryan Roberts. On September 3rd, Lemur Music is hosting Bass Benefits by the Beach. This event is going to be a day of musicians and artists from the local community coming together to raise funds for music education and organizations supporting adults with special needs. So if you are in or around San Clemente, California, stop by Lemur Music. There's going to obviously be live music food, drinks, and all kinds of base goodies being raffled off. And again, all proceeds go to organizations supporting adults with special needs and the Silver Lake Music Conservatory. That is the music school that Flea started some years ago. Yeah, yeah, Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You know, the bass guy. He's got a music school, the Silver Lake Music Conservatory. And Lemur Music is a supporter of that conservatory and music education. So stop by lemurmusic.com for more information on bass benefits by the beach. If you are currently teaching lessons via Skype or Zoom, you're going to want to check out Blink Lesson. Blinklesson.app is an incredibly thorough platform for online educators. The folks at Blink Lesson are offering an extended trial period to listeners of the Bay Shed podcast. Stop by thebayshed.com. Go to the logo for Blink Lesson and start your trial today, your extended 30-day trial today, and take your teaching studio to the next level. Blinklesson.app. For new listeners of the Bay Shed Podcast, check out episode 76, where I talk to the owners of a new music distribution platform. Fine.com is a new platform for artists to sell their creative content. It's started by musicians for musicians and incorporates NFT and blockchain technologies. Now, I didn't know much. I didn't know much about these technologies when I spoke to them on the episode. So you can learn more about the technology and the company right from the owners and the creators of it. Stop by Finet.com, sign up for free, upload your creative content, and start making some money from it. Finet.com. On the podcast is bassist Mr. Marlon Martinez. I initially met Marlon when I was hanging out at Lemur Music about a month ago. We chatted for a bit and played duo. Uh, that was a lot of fun, actually. Marlon stays active as a composer, arranger, and musical director for his own big band, the Marlonius Jazz Orchestra. Marlon composes for the band, and we will discuss a project he was working on for the big band where he was performing the music of the legendary Billy Strayhorn. I thought Billy Strayhorn was a very cool uh, choice for for a composer and arranger to investigate with a big band. So we talk a lot about that. That, that was brilliant to me. Uh, Marlon will also discuss some other music he's investigating for the big band and a group he's in with legendary drummer Stuart Copeland. All right, all right. So for all you youngsters out there, from like the late 70s to about the mid 80s, there's this little band, all right, this little band out of London called The Police. <laughs> Stuart Copeland was the drummer, obviously, for that band. Uh, I love The Police. I love The Police. Uh, so it was cool to talk to Marlon about what it's like playing with Stuart 
and some things he's learned from playing with a drummer uh, of that caliber. That was really fascinating. And the, the concept for Stewart's project is really brilliant, too. That was a lot of fun. So uh, hang in there with the episode to listen to him talk about that. That project he's doing with Stuart Copeland. It was a great time. It was a great time talking with Marlon. And here it is. Here's my talk with composer, arranger, and big band leader, Mr. Marlon Martinez. Marlon, what's up, man? Hey, how are you doing, Ryan? Doing good. How you doing? All right, pretty good. What are you up to, man? Well, um, I mean, I just put some new strings on my electric. Nice. Um, yeah, I got some Diodarios. Okay. Uh, yeah, the NYXLs. Okay. Just going for a bright kind of thing and... Uh, just did a, co- a couple of gigs. I did a gig yesterday, a uh, small group. And then the, the day before my big band played at the, um, the festival of the arts in Laguna beach. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I heard about the small group thing. Talk about the small group thing first. Yeah. Small group. Um, let's see a good friend of mine, Eric Croissant. He's a saxophone player in the Fullerton area. And, mm-hmm. um, he put together, he has like a regular gig at a sushi restaurant in oh, cool. um, Claremont. And it was just kind of okay. like a casual kind of gig. And, you know, and, uh, Is that by where, like what was the name of that jazz and fondue place out there? The hip uh, kitty. Is it out by where the hip kitty used to be? I'm not sure actually. I mean, okay. uh, it's off of like Foothill Boulevard and, and Claremont. Like that little mall yeah. just North of the freeway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah the hip might, kitty might be the same area. Yeah. It might be. It might be. Yeah. That was years ago. There was uh, this jazz club. There was like jazz and fondue on Claremont. It was like the only spot That's to cool. play out there. Yeah. I actually didn't know. A while ago. Oh wow! I actually didn't know about it. So um, yeah, That's but the, cool the gig area. before, yeah, the gig before was um, a really fantastic, uh, great show. Um, that was with the big band. The big band, um, my mother, Josie James, she was on vocals and my dad, Nigel Martinez, uh, sat in on drums, um, for part of the show. And it was kind of like, we, as a family, we don't get to perform very often, but, um, once a year we play in the, at the festival there and, uh, used to be a small group thing, but then over the past three years, I brought the big band to the festival. Now it's the thing is just growing and growing into a, <laughs> a huge Great. ensemble. Man, yeah. big band. Um, I've, I've known about your big band for a while. And it, now uh, help me understand it, because is the big band specifically focused on the music of Billy Strayhorn or is the Billy Strayhorn thing a separate project that you're doing with the big band? You know, it's kind of both. Um, okay. The way I look at it is Marlonius Jazz Orchestra performs my original music primarily, mm-hmm. and we also play the music of Billy Strayhorn. Okay. Uh, whether that be original compositions of his or arrangements that he did for the Duke Ellington Orchestra, we uh, kind of put on a different cap and we do more like the repertory kind of approach to big band playing. Yeah. yeah. Um, that being said, uh, we're a pretty contemporary group. Like all of us as, as individual players, we don't try to emulate or try to sound like the Duke Ellington orchestra. No, not, not at all. It's not a tribute situation fundamentally. Yeah. 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 We play the music because the music is beautiful. And, uh, you know, now out of all the brilliant writers, a big band and, and orchestrators and, and other. How did you land on Billy Strayhorn? Not that that's yeah. 
uh, I mean, it's an obvious choice because he's so brilliant. Like, of course. And I don't think he gets enough recognition in general. Absolutely. Um, but what was that process like for you to land on the music of Billy Strayhorn? Well, um, when I first started listening to jazz as like a elementary school kid, um, I listened to all different kinds. You know, I listened mm-hmm. to uh, big band swing music. I listened to bebop. I listened to um, post bop and then jazz fusion. My parents were in the music business in the R&B funk kind of fusion thing. Okay. So I grew up hearing a lot of different music, but I always gravitated towards the big band sound and particularly um, Duke Ellington's music stood out to me. And there was something about his music or the way they played that particular orchestra played their music. That was different. Um, I felt like um, sure. The music was dance kind of music, swing music, and there's a lot of blues, but there was something else going on in there that I couldn't put my finger on yeah. um, as a, as a young person. And so fast forward to um, when I was studying classical music at the Colburn conservatory, I was really digging into like Maurice Ravel, Debussy, you know, Stravinsky and all of those great composers in the classical world. And my ear was starting to pick up uh, deeper, thicker harmonies, um, different kinds of dissonances, different kinds of textures. And so I remember this one period, like in my masters where I was like, you know, I used to listen to Duke Ellington. Let me go back and like, listen to those things. Cause it, it had been a long time, you know? Yeah. And I was like, I started picking up on tunes that I really liked. And the, the thing that all the thing that they all had was something to do with these like legato lines and like these lush chords and like thick emotional textures. And I was like, that doesn't sound like all of Duke Ellington's music though. And so the name Billy Strayhorn popped up a lot uh, on all the things that I ended up liking, you know? So I was like, okay, so who's this Billy Strayhorn guy? Like I've heard of him before because of documentaries, you know, Mm -hmm. but like there really isn't a whole lot out there on Billy Strayhorn. No, I know. It's uh, yeah. sad, actually. Yeah. And so I, I started digging into it. And, and then um, I kind of went down this rabbit hole, finding that he's the kind of person, the kind of character that I like. It's kind of like the underdog story or like yeah. the, the, the person who's lesser known that actually yeah, contributes kind a of great a, deal. In the, in the wings or in the shadows, yeah. just kind of always yeah. in the background, but really making some things happen. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really into players like that people like that and Mm -hmm. so uh when i when i found his biography and i read that that kind of just changed my life i was like whoa and then what even what even brought it home like in terms of me pursuing billy strayhorn's music was a book by uh walter vandelier who's Mm -hmm. a, a dutch musicologist and historian okay and he did a book all on Billy Strayhorn, like not from the biographical standpoint, but from strictly the music Mm. from an analysis standpoint and also like with discography and like a chronological order of all his work. And so him and the biographer, David Haydu, they put these books out in the nineties and I I read both of them. I read them several times. I was like, okay, like, and I had already picked tunes that I liked and those are independent like, releases, know, right? The two authors yeah. are not working together. They're well, it, it was kind of like David Haydu and his biography came first. Okay. And then Walter Vandelier jumped on the boat because the, the family heirs of Billy Strayhorn reached yeah. out Good. to uh, okay. these guys and were like, Hey, here's all of this music that's 
boxed up and everything. Walter, can you dig into it? And so oh, awesome. he, uh, found all this music and found out that Billy Strayhorn contributed almost like 40% of Duke Ellington's music from yeah, like yeah. the years they worked together. So for me, I was like, well, they were tunes that I already really wanted to play. And there mm -hmm. were things that I was discovering where like nobody had touched certain pieces until like the nineties, until the early two thousands and stuff. And I was like, I want to play this thing. I want to play that thing and this thing. And pretty soon yeah. it was kind of like, I was asking for like an entire library of music <laughs> <laughs> that, that I wanted to bring to the West coast to yeah. a millennial big band. Yeah. yeah. You know? And so with the permission of uh, Billy Strayhorn songs, we said, let's, let's team up and do some projects around that. So are you, you know, in touch with the family or estate holders? Yes. Of, okay, yeah. great. Yeah, and they're we're, still we're friends. Rooted. Good, good. That's cool. I like yeah. that connection. And they're still rooted on the East Coast? Yeah, they're they're all kind of spread around a little bit, uh, like Kentucky, Chicago, uh, okay. Pittsburgh, and other, other areas. And uh, Strayhorn didn't have kids, so it's right. all of, like, his relatives and... Um, Nephews, nieces, their, things yeah. like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so together they, they put together a board and, and a publishing company and oh, cool. all this stuff. And so um, the last project I did, which was kind of like the what I hope to be, like, as a watershed project, I'm, I'm hoping it kind of evolves more, is uh, we did something with the Colburn School in March where we mm -hmm. played some of Billy Strayhorn's music. Yeah, um, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, it was, like, some of his, you know, well-known stuff, like Take the A-Train and, like, Chelsea Bridge and stuff. But then we played other music that um, either hadn't been recorded by the Duke Ellington Orchestra or it, it, or it was, or it had been, but, like, just not coming to the surface in recent right. time. It was, like, it was like the B sides. B sides and, and like things that were going on live, yeah. you know, where you can find a, maybe a bootleg or two somewhere, okay. you know, and then there's other music that there's a big question mark as to whether or not some of this music actually was read by the Ellington orchestra mm. rehearsed or recorded, you know, I was curious so, about that. Like how much of this material did you get from the family and the estate that you can't find on an album somewhere? There's no discography lineage to. Well, I would refer people to the library of Congress okay, because um, Billy Strayhorn's music is available for like publicly for research and, um, and study. Um, yeah. and but I mean, you did know, you find pieces that were never recorded or did you have yes. lead sheets or transcriptions or stuff that was never, that's cool. Um, I kind of looked at different things. I looked at some transcriptions. I, I reached out to some friends that I know, and then I looked into the library of Congress and then I did just did my research on like asking people chasing down charts. Where are these yeah, things, yeah. you know, yeah, but, the, right, right, right. but, but the family, um, also pointed me into a different kind of direction, you know, with the library of Congress. And then, sure. and then at that point it was kind of like, well, um, okay, so this is where I can find this music. There's some music that I would love to play that is still not available. Mm. And that's, that's a whole nother thing, you know? So I had to kind of pick music that I knew that I can access at the moment, right. you know, and present that. And I did a lot of transcriptions too, by the way, like yeah, I was on my ask, own. I was going to ask you about that. And then how much of the material that you received, did you kind of put your fingerprint on? Did you get like, you know, uh, more or less a lead sheet or just like a melody and some changes and you wrote the arrangement or were you getting 
a lot of full arrangements that you could pass out to your big band? What, yeah. what, what did you have to do to fill in the gaps? I guess is my question. The beautiful thing is that the music that I chose um, is already available as a fully formed orchestration. big band orchestration yeah. by okay. Billy Strayhorn. Amazing. Um, I wasn't looking to do an album project and a tribute concert around new arrangements because people do that already with mm -hmm. some of Strayhorn's more well-known tunes. Um, the objective was to introduce, reintroduce Strayhorn's arrangements and his, right. his way of doing things in to, you know, in the modern, like in the present time. And so I looked for big band arrangements. If I couldn't find a big band arrangement, I would do it myself. I would transcribe yeah. and then, you know, and just hope that I got it right. Kind of yeah. thing, you know? <laughs> so, um, so that meant a lot of listening, a lot of looking for, you know, let's say several recordings of the one chart that I'm trying to do, trying to make sure I get all the notes in there and the voicings correct and what yeah. things were mistakes, what, what, what were things that were interpretive notes, you know, things that could be changed on the spot or not. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's always, <laughs> there's that, it sounds like a ton of work. Uh, and I mean, there's always that thing anytime you're transcribing, like there's, there's, you get into the human of the performance because you're dealing with just the performance of it. When you're transcribing, you're yeah. not dealing with the notated part. So even right. if cats are reading it, you know, if they're, they're sliding into notes, if they're bending notes, if they're, all these little articulation things that are, can be question marks. There's, there becomes a gray area in how you're going to duplicate that. Right. And, right. and for you as the leader of it, like however you're going to notate that and you're making all these micro decisions about like, yeah, we're keeping that. No, that was just them. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. That is a lot of what do I want to keep? What I want to, you know, well, what I want to get rid of. It's like you're cleaning out an yeah. old room or something like, I oh, know, keep the sweater. Yeah. The chair goes. You know. Right, exactly. And one of one good example of that, a perfect example was there's a chart called Blues in Orbit. And mm -hmm. it's 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 the title track of this record, Blues in Orbit, that Ellington did in about like 1960 or so. And um Strayhorn wrote the title track. And when I got to access the scores, I was kind of blown away because what I saw on paper was very different. The voicings were entirely different yeah. um, for the, the saxes and the trumpet, you know, together, like, cause that's the instrumentation, it's the rhythm section, but then you have the full sax section and one trumpet. And so okay. the voicings any, any were bones? all different. No bones on that track, okay. no, nothing. Yeah. No full trumpet section. It's just like part of this style that the Ellington straight horn thing is, which is like cross section where it's like, we maybe one trumpet will be mixed in with like blended in with the saxophones or vice mm -hmm. versa, that kind of thing. Well, the voicings were completely different from the studio recording, the live recordings that I can find. So I was like, okay, so this must've been a score that was like in the preliminary stages, or maybe it was done after the fact, you know, there's no mm -hmm. date on some of this, most of this music, there's no date, there's no tempo indication. Um, sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, you just have to kind of, you kind of have to learn Strayhorn's way of, of writing right. a score, a shorthand score. His method, and, yeah. and so what I did find though was, some couple of uh, instrumental parts, like separate parts um, that had nothing to do with this score. And I found that those parts 
when I put them together, they, and I didn't have all the parts available. They're just not, they've just been gone or lost or whatever. Um, it, it matched, it lined up with the recordings. Okay. So I was like, at some point, Strayhorn had changed the notation probably for the studio, you know, probably Mm. for the live thing. And so I had a transcription of mine sitting there ready. Like I thought ready to go. And then I was (laughs) like, I was like, Oh no, like it's completely different. But then I had to just use my ear and trust like, okay, well maybe they changed it over time. So what I transcribed was like the final product, okay, you know? And so that's just what my educated guess would be. And so I ended up saying, well, I'm sure Strayhorn enjoyed how it turned out in the end. I certainly do. So I'm going to stick to yeah, that yeah. version right? and record that version, you know, yeah. but the other thing, the score was kind of like entirely different, you know? Right. So that taught me a lot, you know, about like digging into someone's past and like the time frame in which something is composed and altered, you know, kind of getting this little glimpse and uh, all your research. It's not like it was given to you. You've worked for this information on getting uh, an inside peek at his process because of your investigation on it. How has this shaped your process as a writer or orchestrator? Well, um, I've learned that, um, well, there's a more obvious answer, I think, which would be the way Strayhorn writes things, his Strayhorn isms, uh, little techniques and methods and preferences um, have kind of, transferred over to yeah, yeah i've kind of observed things. certain things um that i enjoy too you yeah, know yeah. but um in terms of work ethic strayhorn wrote entirely differently from like how i have been how i've been writing whereas yeah. like strayhorn was known to have the ideas and this the sound in his head already and he would just go to the paper and write down what he was hearing he didn't need the piano right. you know he was a pianist he didn't need yeah. the piano to dictate what he was trying to process in his brain right. so he would like know the stuff and write it down and so okay. um and that's what i've heard down word of mouth that's yeah. how he would operate with me i have the strand of the melody i might have an idea of the kind of sound that i want but i might not know exactly what voicing it is that i'm i'm kind of hearing so i need the piano you know yeah so i kind of work differently um um so it's more i've learned a lot more about like what he does different (laughs) from like how how i write you know right um sometimes what's funny though is that the way i write notes sometimes looks a little bit like how he writes notes and like when i started looking at his handwritten manuscripts i would be like wait a minute like for a quick second i'd be like wait that's my handwriting and then i'd be like (laughs) and then i'd be like wait a second no that's totally not my handwriting but we have similar (laughs) similar things so it's kind of you know because there weren't computers back then so it's you know um i think one thing that i've one important thing that i've taken from this experience has been um trusting your ear Mm. when you write you yeah. know, um, and then going with your, your gut. Yeah. And not like mentally making it try to be super academic or right. look hip quote unquote, yeah. on paper. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that because I mean, that's, yeah. it's an oral art form, you know? And yeah. so like, that's how people are going to engage with it. They don't right. get a piece of them. They don't get the score when you're at the club. You know, right. they're not following right. along on paper. Oh, um, yeah. So if you're trusting your ear and you have an educated ear, 
probably more so than the average audience member. Um, you know, it's gonna it's gonna communicate well. Now, right. as a big band leader, was there ever an inclination to get into Mingus or Pettiford or any of the other dudes that did it? There were bass players, or is that kind of in the um, back burner? Like you're still you're still interested in that or not as interested because you want a new vocabulary as a bass player, big band leader. Um, you know, I, I love the Mingus big band and I yeah. think that that's, they champion Charlie, you know, Charlie Mingus, you know, yeah. um, from the arrangements and all that and the, the original. So I kind of never thought of doing a Mingus project um, yeah. as a bass player though. I'm always inspired by Mingus and Pettiford and all the, the rest of them. And so um, I'm informed, uh, I think by those, those musicians yeah. as a player, um, you know, but I, I haven't thought of doing a project around their music. Okay. Necessarily. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's Mingus is such a, musical personality and just a, a very specific character in the yeah. world too, you know, and like his music to me is such a replica reflection of everything I've read about him and, uh, and all that, you know, I, I don't know. You could, I think anybody, like I've heard the Mingus big band that still exists and they sounded amazing. A lot of amazing yeah. players. In it. Yeah. Uh, but there's, there's a specific energy that still is in the Mingus big band with Mingus or even the smaller group stuff. It's, he was the motor. That personality drove that thing, you know? Right. right, right. And it, it's his mind that created the, the music and all that stuff. And it's, it's such a personal energy from Mingus when it comes in to that specific right. music, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, as, as a bassist playing in the band, um, I, I could say, I feel like I can speak for everyone in the group. I think the way we play brings the music forward. Like we're not yeah. like reading the chart, you right. know, like that's not the mindset. The mindset is being ourselves and finding ourselves through the stuff we're reading, you know? And so therefore, like, I, I always hope that whenever the band plays, I hope that there's a energy there that is, uh, there's a, I've, the I've now, checked it out, you know? man. There's a, there's a very, very energetic big band. It's a very energetic big band. Like everybody's, everybody's showing up to play. Like there's a lot of, a lot of energy there. And I wanted to speak to you specifically about when playing in a big band, you're constantly, playing in the rhythm section. I mean, you're, you're always playing in the rhythm section, but what I mean is like, you know, you're just supporting, well, the, the brass is doing their big figures and all that stuff. And then it's soloist time. Then it's small group. And then it's like yeah. small group with some backgrounds. So you're like kind of still small group, but you're thinking, you know, this is happening. You, you're kind of shifting gears a lot in, in playing in any big band. How do you navigate that? Uh, is that something you think about or do you try to just be super present to what the music is and just be show up for that? But since you uh, wrote it and you're leading the band, there's probably other things on your mind and you know exactly where the tune's going at all times. I, yeah, I, I tend to, that's a really great question. I, I feel like it's constant, you know, it's okay. like, I feel like it's for me, it's like the orchestrations and the small group elements come together. I feel like they're hand in hand. And mm -hmm. so I, I don't necessarily as a bassist, I don't treat the way I play um, with a full orchestration any different. I, I, I tend to treat the bass playing the same. Mm -hmm. um, if a soloist is up there, 
versus a written line for everybody playing. I think the rhythm section should always be as focused on the moment, regardless of whatever's how, in the how moment. Dense, you know? Yeah, how dense yeah, the, yeah. the thing is, yeah. Yeah, and because there's a certain energy as a combo player that I right. think is the spirit of jazz, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so keeping that spirit through the orchestrations livens yeah. the music in a different way than just doing like just just only supporting like every detail of the orchestration like right. you you listen to a great example of this is like the way um art blakey's big band art blakey had a big band for a little bit the way he would play his fills and his the way he would just play it sounds like art blakey and the jazz messengers but it's just right. you got the big band sound or like duke ellington's drummer sam woodyard would play the same way with like a smaller group of people and would play the same way with the, the whole large ensemble and everybody right and yeah and i talked to drummers in the big band about this because it's like the fills that we do in my band are more like the kind of fills that the drummer would probably play in in his it's okay. his small group or something you know yeah, it's like yeah. i i try to retain that individuality and mix that in with the arrangements that we're doing and i think that's what keeps the music moving forward and contemporary you know yeah, yeah I agree. um yeah and if that answers the question no it does uh, it does how much yeah. how much writing do you do for the rhythm section and specifically yourself like how much is on um, those bass charts? So that being said, right, with the individuality and all that yeah. stuff, I do write a lot of hits. Okay. <laughs> there are there are things to catch and yeah, there so are the, things that the go with the brass. What's, you know? what's happening, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't dictate like um, every, when it comes to playing open or um, just the basic groove, I won't notate everything out. You know, I'll still okay. have a lot of slashes, but the hits are pretty um, essential. Yeah, you know, with the ensemble. The yeah. Yeah. It's always like the little nuances in between the hits. I think that really defines the spirit of the moment, you know? Sure. So sure. Um, yeah. you've got to work with Stuart Copeland. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, Stuart Copeland, the drummer of the police, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for those listening that, but we, we're shifting gears now. We just went from big band. Yeah, big <laughs> and band to yeah we just went from Blakely <laughs> to Copeland. We're shifting gears. Uh, how did you get introduced to Stuart? And t- tell me how that process happened. How did you get introduced to him? And uh, tell me what it was like playing with him and all that. Well, so the story goes that Stuart was putting together a new band called Off the Score. Um, okay we're playing the group plays off the score. The score is like really dense classical works like oh, wow. the right of spring, oh, wow. but we play off the score and improvising around key moments of that classical score. Interesting. It's a fusion band in its, at its core, you know? Yeah. Um, now he was looking for a bass player who can do, who can read like an orchestra player improvise like a jazz and blues player and be in the spirit of the moment and to be able to handle large amplifiers and stuff like a rock player. Okay. Um, And so, um, and he wanted someone under the age of 30 at the time. And I wasn't, (laughs) I wasn't, I was not 30 at the time. (laughs) And um, I was a master student 
at Colburn Conservatory and I was in a Baroque class and I, my phone was vibrating because at that time I used to always have my phone on vibrate, which is really weird because I don't do that anymore. Yeah. But like <laughs> I was checking my, I looked in my pocket and um, so, you know, this already Ryan, but um, so I know Stanley Clark, we're, yeah. we're buddies. Like I've, are, you know, we've crossed paths several times and things like that. I get this call and it's Stanley okay. and I'm like, freaking out because Stanley d- doesn't call you unless there's something important going on or something. So I was just like, right. okay, what, what's this going on? This is like next level Stanley yeah. attention. Like, oh man, yeah. I got I to get this one. Yeah. yeah. And I was kind of like, okay, I, yeah, I have to get out of this class. So I was just like, I, I just pretended to use the restroom and sure. I missed his call. So I, I'm checking a voice message. He says, so I have a friend of mine. We go back, you know, many years, his name is, you probably know him. His name is Stuart Copeland. And he just kind of talked him off. Like it was just a buddy who yeah. needed help, you know? And I was just like, yeah putting the connecting the dots together. I'm like, what does Stuart Copeland want from yeah. me? You know, so far, this, set, and- <laughs> setup, this setup sounds like Stanley's got a friend who needs like to borrow your pickup to move. You yeah. Know? Like, 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 yeah, well, I know you got an F-150 and my friend's looking to move apartments. Like, can you help him move a couch? Yeah. That's what the setup sounds like so far. It's hilarious. So it turns out that, um, Stuart listened to some stuff that I've been doing um, as a classical player at Colburn and like my individual projects and things in jazz. And, um, and then apparently Stanley recommended that he, that Stuart reach out to me himself. And so I was kind of like, so that was sort of what the message was about. And I was like, well, what's the project though? Because I was like, I had no idea. Are you expecting me to pick up electric bass and be like sting (laughs) or what, you know? And so, um, Stuart called me and, and I picked up the phone. I was in my dorm and he said, I'm looking for a guy who can do this, 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 this. And he listed like this laundry list of things. And then at the end of it, he's like, and, uh, so I hear that you're the guy for that. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, there was like dead silence. And I was like, all I remembered saying was, yes, I'm your guy. Yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. And I was like, so when do we start? <laughs> he yeah. says, he said, well, it was like a Thursday when he called. He's like, well, can you come in on Tuesday next week? I'm like, and I had thinking to myself, I have classes. I have like lessons and things. I'm like, right, right, right. Uh, things you gotta said, do. Yeah. I'm like, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> so yeah. I dropped everything <laughs> and I, cool. and I went and I, I did some um, punching in some bass. Uh, and that was kind of my audition was to punch in some bass lines and do a couple of things with the bow. And he had like a, a pre-recorded thing and okay. he's, he wanted me to do some stuff there and fit myself into a project. And after that, um, he said, okay, great. So I'll send you my agent and, uh, and uh, he'll tell you everything about the tour. And I'm like, okay, there's a nope. tour. Nope. <laughs> and then we kind of just it took it from there really, you know? Okay. That's killing, man. That's <laughs> and, killing. and playing, playing with Stuart is uh, a whole nother level of like focus that is needed because Stuart is, is, and he knows this Stuart is known to be a loud, like heavy hitting drummer, bright sound, crispy sound, yeah. articulation and consistency of groove is right. like a constant and, and, and you can't have like a muddy sound with Stuart. It has to be like crisp and clean. And, and he, he didn't want electric bass. He wanted upright specifically. Okay. So that kind of makes sense though. Like coming yeah. from this, uh, I mean, I don't even know how to consolidate his concept necessarily, but it's kind of free music. It's very interpretive, but it's rooted yeah. in classical. 
yeah, you know, yeah, and, much, and Western yeah. art music and all that. Uh, yeah. So the upright makes sense, you know, kind of yeah. more so than the electric. It's yeah. this is older music and go with the older instrument, you know, and classical, really, you know, yeah. To yeah. really set it in that time period. Right. And, and that's kind of what he's asking me to do. It was like, it was very, it's, it, it has been a very athletic type of gig, you know, right. and, and I, I love doing it and we haven't worked for a while for a couple of years now, but uh, we are gigging next year in Minnesota oh, in July. So I'm hoping okay. fingers crossed that more gigs will come out of that. You know, yeah. that's so, killing, man. That's so killing. Yeah. Like just to, just to kind of like be in the project with, you know, a legend, like he's a legend. That's, that's great. He showers after every show. That's his first thing. That's his, that's his thing, huh? That's yeah, just... As soon as he's done, runs to the shower, cleans up. <laughs> <laughs> what, have, <laughs> what have you learned as a bass player about uh, from working with him? Like, what kind of things have you maybe rhythmically or precision wise, or what things have you learned from him that you've adopted into your own playing? Well, or maybe personal the, hygiene. Are you showering more? Whatever it is. I think we can connect. Stuart and I can connect on that level because yeah, okay. I, I, I shower all the time. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, uh, well, definitely the clarity thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like a loud bass player. Okay. I do like there are guys in jazz who are against that and, you know, and they want to have like just a microphone on stage and no amp and, you know, or just play with gut string and be like kind of old school. And I like that and appreciate it too. I respect it, but um, I like a good, clear, solid bass, you know, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I, and I also like sustain um, on each note. And that's something yes. that Stewart would be used to used to being playing with electric bass players, you know, and I mean, Stewart and Stanley have played together a million times and, and there's that kind of sustain and duration of note and things like that, you know, so sound concept wise, I've been inspired by Stewart uh, very much because, you know, he has a bright, crispy sound and there's just something so lively and energetic about it mm-hmm. um, that I, I hope to, still I'm still on that quest to try to take those concepts and apply it to double bass playing. You know what I mean? Um, I feel like Stanley comes from a very similar place though of yeah. sound production and definitely by no means relying on an amp to get sound production. Right. I want to be totally very, not. yeah, I want to be very adamant about that, but he is not um, like some kind of bebop purist that is you know gut strings and like if you can't hear me turn down he's he doesn't come from that place either so i I feel like stanley and your relationship with stanley uh probably also influences maybe that yeah yeah you know it's like i've always been inspired by um stanley the way he plays and like his concepts um yeah and i feel that it 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 works with um works with Stewart, you know, the way that he plays and what he's looking for in a bassist. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, I think actually, you know, one of the things that I've, I've gotten from working with both Stanley and Stewart is keeping my love for classical music present. Mm. Okay. Uh, that's something that's a side of both of the, both of those artists that yeah. is really strong with them. They, they respect and love classical the classical canon, you know, and the great composers in Europe and, and American classical composers, you know, and um, uh, 
I was already loving classical music as I was studying it, but there was a point in time in the like 2010s where I was kind of like not sure whether I wanted to continue playing classical music seriously. Oh, really? Yeah. And I was contemplating like not being an orchestral player because I was doing so much like writing for jazz and wanting to lead my own groups and stuff like that. And I was kind of like at a crossroads and, um, you know, both, both of those guys inspired me to keep the bow, you know, and like do things with the bow, use it, you know, use all the parts of yourself Mm -hmm. in the different interests that you have and put it all together in one thing, you know? So I've, I've, uh, tried to do that. Even with the big band, I'll take out the bow and I'll do like a solo or some kind of cadenza or something like that, you know, you know, those things are, do you continue to go? I know we've talked about this actually when we were hanging, whatever that was like a month ago. Uh, but do you, do you go back and revisit the dudes that kind of put that on the map within jazz? Like, you know, Pettiford, Slam Stewart, Paul Chambers, Chambers, guys that were really using the bow a lot and integrating that. Yeah. As part of their solo vocabulary. It's funny. Actually, you mentioned Paul Chambers because today I was at, I was at a mall in seal beach and like they were blasting, um, we're blasting a bunch of bebop records as well, like what mall blast to be like i don't yeah. ever go to you know foot locker <laughs> and expect to hear cool strutting by gasani yeah. clark like I seriously don't, what's yeah. going on yeah here? yeah i forget what the tune was but uh paul chambers solo arco solo was like so loud it was yeah. just like echoing down the hall and i was like this is amazing you know and i'm just <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to get it like a COVID test for a gig that I have coming up. And like, I'm hearing Paul Chambers is Boeing, like all over the, like the, the sound system at this mall, you know, that's hilarious. I think they did something revolutionary yeah. with the bow, you know, and, and just bridging, bridging the, the practices of classical traditional ways of playing with jazz and blues and other expressions, you know, putting all that together, you know, speaking of Stanley, going back to this, you were, and you told me this story in person, but I'd love for you to tell it on the mic. Cause I think it's a wonderful story. You were at Ron Carter's 85th birthday party in Carnegie hall. Uh, when was that exact? That was may. Um, what was it? May 15 or something. No, yeah, no, no, it wasn't that. Yeah, I yeah, remember yeah. it being yeah, it around was. then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, I think it was, it was like May 10th. May 10th. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Happy birthday, Ron. And yes, happy so, birthday. And you were at, you were at Carnegie and you were a part of presenting Ron with a bass. Tell that, <laughs> right. tell that story. I love <laughs> so, this story. So like, so I fly into New York on the 9th and, um, and I've been, in touch with Stanley and a couple other people because Stanley wanted me and several bass players to be part of the event. And I thought we were just going to be taking photos. And I thought that we were just going to say hello to Ron and like shake hands and, you know, and, and just kind of take care of him and give him whatever he needs. And so I came in, like I flew into New York like that. I was like, okay, good. This is going to be great. I don't have to do a whole lot, you know, cause I, yeah. that's a lot of pressure, you know, and, and yeah. I just wanted to be present, you know, well, I get this text and Stanley says, so you're going to, 
present him a bass that Lenny and I, Lenny White, Lenny, yeah. and, Lenny and I had uh, uh, put together for Ron. You're going to present it to him. I'm like, what does he mean by that? Like, <laughs> am I going to speak? Like, yeah. am I going to prepare something? You yeah, know, right. and I was, I was starting to get really like anxious and I was like, but I was like, excited, kind of, you know. What kind of ritual is this? You yeah, know, all this yeah. Kind of Simba <laughs> on the mountain in the Lion yeah. King. There's going to be yeah. some grand <laughs> presentation so i was really like i was really self-conscious i was like hey good I, I i gotta make sure i got the right shoes that i packed correctly you know well you gotta and have so, I mean, to run you have to have a strong yeah. sock game too yeah like the socks i knew gotta I, be on point the socks I, I had the right kind of socks i did not have a tuxedo okay. so i was a little nervous i was yeah, like okay. but i had a red coat though and i was like okay. i think i think he'd like the red coat yeah i feel, <laughs> I feel like these... <laughs> ron might call you out if you didn't like hand tie your own bow tie too oh god yeah <laughs> sure you know that's like something i feel like ron would do you probably you know yeah. <laughs> and so i didn't have a tie i had a fancy i had these kind of like african patterns on my shirt and i was like this is just who i am take it or leave it you know yeah, yeah. but i'm giving ron this base at some point and i have sure. no idea when and so i spend a beautiful day in new york i'm visiting all my favorite sites and things and then i walk down central park and i'm gonna go to carnegie hall and make my way backstage um and um, there was this whole thing about how to get in backstage because someone else had my name on a different list and all this stuff. So we're getting together. We figure it out and um, eventually make my way backstage. And Stanley and I go upstairs and the presenter um, brings us the base that um, that we were going to give to Ron. And I thought I thought Ron was going to be on stage with his one of his bands. And I thought that we were going to walk out and give it to him on stage. Well, it turns out that um and it's uh, an we electric base, right? Electric base. Yeah. Okay. Not, a, not an upright. And that was yeah. the thing that was also cool was it was like a, this custom built like electric base. Yeah. And, um, and it had Ron's name like engraved in Pearl, like ah, on the fingerboard, awesome. just beautiful, you know? And, and so I was like, okay, well, how are we going to do this? Because they keep telling me uh, it's going to be a surprise. Okay. But Ron is wandering backstage and, chilling with his band members and everything. And like, we're all in the same room, you know, I'm just like, there's this conspicuous thing. They're like, this is electric bass case, you know? And like, um, and we're like, okay, so, and I'm talking to Stanley, what's going to happen? What's the plan? And so Stanley gives me a plan. He says, so me and Lenny white are going to go out, go out and, um, introduce the show, you know, start the show with some words about Ron, you know, and then on cue, we'll, we'll call you forward and you come out on stage with the bass. So I'm like, Oh, okay. So I'm going to go out on, on stage at Carnegie hall, which I've never played there before, yeah. you know? And I was just like, Hey, at least I get to step foot on it. You know, have, have you been there? Um, have you been there to witness other yeah. music? Okay. Yeah. But I was just like, well, like I'm in the, the grand hall, you know, know. and, and uh, I get to step out there and especially in relation bass. to Ron and all the things Ron did there. You yeah, know, those timeless records with Miles on that stage. Like, yeah. that's a very important. Yeah. Place. And so I was kind of like, OK, so I knew that I was going to give the bass over to Ron uh, to um, Stanley. Stanley was going to give the bass to Ron. Well, there was a whole nother plan going on backstage. The presenter was <laughs> like one person was like, OK, you got to hide the bass, put the bass behind you. You know, Ron is over there and put it behind you first. You know, <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. We see it. We see it. We'll put it up, put it away. And I was like, OK, well, that's weird. And, and yeah, then I'm like, you know, you're just trying stand, to stand yeah. in front of an electric bass the whole time. And yeah. And I'm like, awkward. And I'm like, OK, so um, um, I'm like, 
well, okay, so how's this going to work? Like, is Ron going to come out or is this going to be later or what? And it was like, there were some little details there that were missing. And so I was kind of getting nervous. And and like, before I can even come up with a good idea as to how to hide the base, the presenter opens the door or he like, he signals the usher to open the door. He's like, go now, now. (laughs) I'm like, okay. And I didn't even get the signal from Stanley, you know, or anything (laughs) like that. And they're like, just go. So So I'm like walking out blind onto the stage of blind. Stage of Carnegie <laughs> Hall with this electric bass, yeah, for Ron, and you have no idea w- what happens next. Yeah, and Ron, and I don't know if Ron notices. Like he's seeing yeah. this thing happen. Like why is why am I walking out there? You know, yeah. and I'm like walking there with this bass, and so, but I put on a, a you know just my confidence, and I go out there, and I'm like I, I present this bass, you know, like Simba. Yeah, you know, it's very much like that. And I'm like going like this. <laughs> And then I hand the bass over to Stanley and I'm like, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it, for, so it didn't matter what the plan was. I guess the main point was taken care of, you know, okay, cool. I was like, boom, that was nice. And then, um, and then I sat backstage eventually with Stanley, Buster Williams, um, God, who else? A couple of other players uh, and Stanley's son and, and other people. We were just sitting backstage and and it was just like a magical moment to to yeah. share that musical experience with these legends, you know. Right. And I was just the the young guy there, and I was just like, man, this is like deep. And we were all we're all influenced by Ron, and we all thank Ron for everything that he did, you know. Yeah, yeah. So was it was, was it as bass player heavy as I assume it to be? Like all the cats from New York, did you see a lot of those guys? Surprisingly, I did not. Really? Yeah, it was. Hmm. Um, I didn't, I didn't see a lot of people in the audience that I recognized. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and there was some talk about that too, I guess. Really? In retrospect, people were like, yeah, it would have been cool if like, <laughs> I don't know who was there, you know, like I, I yeah. wasn't there the whole time backstage, you know? Um, so After, I don't know who walked in, but. you know, any, any close friends of Ron's, I mean, obviously Herbie and Wayne come to mind right away. I'm yeah. sure they have paid their respects if they weren't yeah. there for whatever yeah. reasons. I did not see Herbie or Wayne. Yeah. 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 I mean, I know Herbie's out here. Wayne's out here. Uh, yeah. And I'm sure uh, they acknowledged Ron in some way, whether they were yeah. there or not. I'm, I'm obviously, but in my head, it's just going to be like this huge base fest where like, yeah. you know, generations of generations are going to be there. Like I'd expect to see yeah. McBride, Grenadier, you know, all that generation of guys, even the generation older, um, I would expect to see everybody. Cause I mean, that's- yeah, yeah, I was, I was, uh, I was hoping for that actually, yeah. you know, and I thought there was going to be like, uh, I think Stanley and, and others thought that it was going to be that, that way too. I think um, there was going to be like a big bass festival yeah. thing. And then Ron told Stanley and everybody else said, no, I'm just going to play myself. <laughs> like, it's like, it's my birthday. I want to play. Yeah. Like with my bands on my birthday, that was that kind of thing. <laughs> how many so, how many bands did he did he bring? Uh, he had was it three. Uh, he had three bands. Okay. He had the trio. Um, he had the quartet, and then he had the octet with four cellos in a rhythm section. Oh wow! Yeah, and Ron played the piccolo bass. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. With the with the bow, he did oh, a lot really? of arco that night. Yeah, and he had an I forget the bass player's name, but he had another bassist um, being the supporting bass player. Okay. Um, in that particular instrumentation, and and that was kind of like the big finale was having the larger group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, that was really magical. That's really sick. magical. That's, sick. That's a great thing to be a great thing to be a part of. Um, what else do you got coming up? 
Besides, you got so, this upcoming tour with Stuart Copeland next year. Yeah. Uh, what's what's in the more immediate future, as well, performance wise and writing wise? Like, what do you? Yeah, what are you working yeah. On both fronts. Well, I have um, my big band is performing at Vibrato Grill uh, next week, Thursday, um, okay. August eighteen. We got two show times: seven o'clock and eight thirty. Um, Give me a text about that to remind me. I want to come out. I want to come out. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I want to talk to Hussein also. Yeah, and um, it's going to feature some Billy Strayhorn music. Right. And it's going to feature a bunch of original music that I'm working on. And um, my mother, Josie James, will be singing some songs um, in the jazz standard category. And it will be a really good show. Really nice players. Um, How is this new music different from what you had previously written or a style or a concept? Has anything changed? Yeah, so there's a piece of music that I'm working on right now called the Audrey Hepburn Suite. Okay. Uh, I'm I a like big, this already. Yeah. I, well, yeah. you know, the name Audrey Hepburn is just, it can it can mean a lot of different things because she was an actress. For those those people who might not know this, like other than fash, being a fashion icon and an actress, you know, iconic, um, she was also a humanitarian, you know, mm-hmm. activist, and she was a goodwill ambassador for UNICEF. You know, the last like five years of her life. And I did not know that. Actually. She she grew up like in. Well, the Nazis occupied Holland where she was growing up in her teens and she almost oh. died of starvation. Oh my yeah. gosh. I didn't know so, any of that. Yeah. This is like this, another story of an unknown person or someone in the shadows with so many obstacles put in front of them, you know, and then yeah. being able to emerge from that and to become something transcendent that's audrey hepburn to me you know and very similar to billy strayhorn in that regard i was going to talk about that and if we can hit pause on audrey hepburn for a second i think a lot of bass players identify with the underdog story yeah because while we're in the midst of doing it whether a small group or a larger group especially within jazz where we have so much creative input we kind of know that we're driving the train more than they think we are like we're making we have a lot of work. We're, we're, we're really kind of steering it and nudging it around some places that, you know, we might not always get credit for. And there's a bit of uh, underdog syndrome that I think is associated <laughs> with that. Like right. we're, we're aware, we're aware first and foremost, that we're never really going to get the attention for that. Unless it's by another bass player who understands the work that goes into that. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But like not always will another instrumentalist hear a group go from here to like take all these turns and do all that stuff and realize that a good portion of that was probably dictated by the bass player. Yeah. So I I think that I think bass players have a an affinity and an association with the underdog story. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Because I think we we live in that space, even even though you're a leader and a musical director, you know, I just cut my own record and I lead groups, even though you're at the front of the stage in the front of it, <clears throat> you're still, the job is in the back, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so, We're cleaning up. We're cleaning yeah, up. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> right, we're the setup crew and the janitor crew. Yes. All, and we tear all, down. Yeah. yeah. All in real time. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think that, that there's, and I like that. I like that. Uh, I like that you've kind of found these, these people who have recognizable names within not just musical like Strayhorn, but other aspects of art like Hepburn and to under 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 expose, I guess, is the word 
expose their underdog story. And I think yeah. that there's a very yeah. humanitarian story in the underdog thing. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. And it's all about, I always say that to me, Audrey Hepburn and Billy Strayhorn, they, they are, they exemplify humanity, you know, mm-hmm. what it means to be human, what it means to live and die and suffer and yeah. know, like find love to search for love and meaning in life and all that good stuff. And so, and I, I just been drawn to Audrey's acting and everything and her charm and all that good stuff that people know her for. And so I was just like, you know, one day I was just like, what, wouldn't it be cool to do a big band tribute to Audrey Hepburn because Mm. big band is such a central part of many of her most famous movies. Um, And some of the composers that she worked with include people who are big band people like, you know, Henry Mancini, Nelson Riddle, uh, John Williams, you know, people that, that, big band was a huge part of their output as creators, you know, in the Hollywood scene in the fifties and sixties. And so yet uh, I don't hear big bands playing music dedicated to Audrey Hepburn. So I was just like, this has to be something. I don't feel like I've come across too many artists in other aesthetics, really paying uh, homage to her, except for the fashion. Like people recognize her as a fashion icon. Um, or a beauty icon, but not, not when it comes to something that's related to a craft fashion is a craft. I don't want to do all that. Like there's a craft to fashion, but when it comes to music or any kind of other, you know, pottery, some other kind of artistic expression. Yeah. Rarely. I I've never come across, uh, anybody kind of acknowledging Audrey Hepburn for anything other than the fashion beauty thing. And it's abstract, but it actually makes a lot of sense to me. You know, uh, Audrey was a dancer. She was a ballet dancer and she wanted to be a professional ballerina. But because of health complications and just the war, (laughs) you know, know she could not do that. So how did she pass? Was it because of health complications? Yeah, well, she she died of a rare cancer. Oh, wow. Like really rare. Uh, I don't remember the name of it, um, but now there's more research on this particular cancer now, um, you know, and she died at age 63. Oh, wow. You know, like, Mm. yeah. And like, so I was kind of like, well, this is a story, you know, and like the big band thing could um, personify or, you know, musically illustrate some of these experiences that she faced and just elements about her style elements about her life and things like that. I thought about like, wouldn't it be cool to do like a suite, like a multi-movement thing Yeah, kind of in the style of like Ellington and Strayhorn with the suites, you know, have you um, ever written one before? Have you ever written a multi-movement? So no, I actually, <laughs> I wanted to do one called the food suite because <laughs> I love food so much, oh, you know, know. were you going to do the jazz play on words and just call it S W E E T? But if yeah. I, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the jazz guy. Yeah. thing. It's I know with the verbiage. Yeah. 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 Okay. I, well, I was thinking about all that, you know, yeah. like, like Christian McGriddle, you know, like, <laughs> like naming yeah. artists and food and stuff, but I never, <laughs> I never actually like pursued it, you know, okay. like as seriously. And so this is my, technically my first suite, you know, that I'm working on. Um, I've got, um, I've, I've already recorded one professionally, um, called Audrey, the dancer. That's like, uh, really long it's like a six minute 
big band thing, you know, completely um, through composed or do you open that up for solos? Only, only two minor, not minor, but two little solo moments, but okay. a lot of it, even, even individual parts are through composed yeah. um, in certain sections and things. And then I got three other movements that I'm working on already. Um, I have, so I have two finished movements and then I have two that I'm kind of like modifying a little bit. And then I have a solo bass thing that I just finished um, that I'm going to incorporate into the suite. So yeah, I, I, I definitely have some, some ideas and I think it will be like hopefully seven movements, maybe eight movements or something like that. Right. Um, you know, so, um, yeah, so that's one of the, the, the compositionally, that's what I'm working on right now. And so, I mean, I have to ask, did you write an arrangement of moon river, you know, um, or did you sidestep that because it's such an obvious. No, sorry. I'm going to get my charger. Um, I think, you know, I thought about that and, you know, I'm going to be bold and say, no, I'm not going to do a, a version of Moon River, but, but it's I a might too on the nose, but I, so yeah. I, I respect the decision not to put it on there because it's a little right. too like, of course, you know, right, and right. here it is, you know? Oh, and by the way, um, so let me just plug this in. John Clayton just did a spectacular arrangement of Moon River. And I, I, oh, I really? saw, yeah, I saw Diane Reeves sing it uh, with the Clayton Hamilton jazz orchestra. And okay. I was just like, I can't okay, there you. it is. <laughs> I was like, there it is. There's Moon River for you. You like, know what? About, about that song and about her performance on that song, I think uh, those, those lyrics are so, they're so full of imagery and it's, so delicate. The song is so delicate. And the way she sings it is so delicate and full of vulnerability. Um, yes. I think nobody, nobody has. And I've because I, I, I love this song. And at one point I was going to, you know, try to mess with it and write an arrangement for it or something about it. And I was listening to all these different versions of it. And finally, I opted out because I think no one can touch her performance on it. That is amazing. You're saying this because that's literally what Henry Mancini said about like, it. It is perfect. <laughs> it is yeah. perfect. I yeah. Like the yeah. closest, the closest interpretation I've heard that I'm like, yeah, okay. It's in the ballpark. It's in the ballpark. I still prefer Audrey is Mel Dow. When Mel Dow played it, he's got the same introspective sensitivity to it, wow. but his, it's not as, uh, you can hear this kind of naive thing in her voice when she sings. Yeah. And yeah. Like, I don't know if I can say that for anything Mel Dow has played. Like I don't hear naive. He's definitely yeah. got the sensitivity and, and the vulnerability and kind of this bleeding heart thing a little bit, but it's, yeah. it has a different mood to it. And his her yeah. version is cannot be touched. And not. it's, it's like, yeah, it's irreplaceable. And Absolutely. That's, these are, you're describing the qualities, the very qualities that I love about Audrey Hepburn and mm-hmm. just that, that type of a person, yeah. you know, um, and like what she embodies. And so, um, therefore I've just been like all in, I'm like, yeah. I don't care if it takes me a year to do this or whatever, you know, like this is a great thing to work on. And it's actually taught me a lot about my compositional process, mm. you know? Um, so this just is- working on it. I was, uh, I had also at one point wanted to write a suite. And so I started listening to a bunch of them. I started researching them. And this lasted like eight to nine months that I was just like kind of a research thing. Um, and it was all, it was all going to be very much a story 
uh, about some uh, thing I was going through in life. Um, there's a lot of latitude within a suite. There's a lot of latitude. Um, I mean, you know this because I'm sure you, you have more of a classical upbringing than I do. So you obviously know this. Uh, some composers kind of struck were fit into this form of a suite tighter than, you know, let's say a love Supreme, which is still a suite and very abstract. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you take any of those, you know, uh, a classical composer from any period of Western art music to the avant-garde thing of Coltrane, there's so much latitude within what can still be conveyed as a suite. What is a suite? Yeah. yeah, That has one message and one theme overarching with these little vignettes uh, within it. How are you approaching writing a suite? So um, like one example is um, all about her smile, just like that big, bright, huge smile that she's got. What is that? What does that evoke in me? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so write music that exemplifies that, you know? And then there's one uh, Audrey, the dancer, which is a little more biographical because it's and it it show it's like a virtuosic piece for the big band. So it's really hard. There's a lot of licks in there. Like everybody has a lot of work to do, including myself. And it's very virtuosic. That's like her dancing, but then there's a slow section. That's a ballad. And and it's the alto saxophone in like a Johnny Hodges kind of approach, like with the backdrop of big band, you know, where it's, it's, it describes it, it musically uh, represents her kind of yearning to be a, a prima ballerina. That was the big dream that she always had and she could not do it hmm. uh, for various reasons. And it was a internal struggle yeah, to there's a conflict there. Yeah. Conflict and to be able to um, let it go, you know? Hmm. And so that's the middle section. And then the, the finale part of that movement is up tempo again, where she resolves to dance her way through her life, do whatever it takes, you know, to keep that love there, but just do it, express it in a different way, which is through acting and through, you know, her humanitarianism and being a mother and all that good stuff. So it's like, it, it kind of takes like a, goes into a, a slow so thing. Then did it grows. You kind of, did you, you kind know? of like take concerto form and add it to this one movement of <laughs> no, the suite? Maybe, that's, that, that maybe I did. Very reminiscent of concerto form. I would say like sonata. Yeah. Like sonata form in okay. some ways it's a ternary form where you have a recapitulation, you recap yeah. and restate the previous theme. Um, yeah. uh, I like to do that and kind of mixing up like both the beginning theme with the middle section theme and putting that together. So I kind of thought very formal in that sense with that yeah. movement. And I put that in a suite, you know? Okay. Um, and then there's like a solo bass thing that is like more intimate because it's just me and the bass, you know, and that's like, uh, that's an emotional expression. And I put that in there as well. So it's like, it's kind of like, it can be formal, but it can be kind of free as well. You know, a little bit of both. And it seems like these two movements already, you're really focusing on just the light of Audrey Hepburn, the talent, what she brought to the world that, that, you know, can light us up because of her inner light, the smile, like the talent of the dance, you know, you're not focusing on someone who, um, this kind of dreams deferred idea. You're not talking on the darkness that she was never really fully able to be follow her passion as a ballerina, but, uh, all the, all the ways that she brought light to society. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, like I'm, I'm just excited. It's like, you know, it's like, you know how this is as a creator, you know, you don't know how it's going to turn out on the other side, right. you know, and there's this, scary as hell. <laughs> yeah, there's this anticipation of like, okay, is it, are we going to, are we going to land it? You know, yeah. is it going to work, you know? <laughs> right. And I love that process. And so I've, I've been experimenting with like playing some of these movements uh, in my shows just to kind of test them out. Uh, it's funny that these things are kind of happening all at the same time because like the gig I did at the festival of the arts on Saturday was the same day that, uh, Turner classic movies did an entire Audrey Hepburn marathon. Oh, wow. The same day. That's great. And I, and I just played one of the movements, uh, at that show <laughs> that That's same funny. day. That's so it's funny. kind of, yeah, it's like weird how things sometimes you, line up. Is there any know? interest to get in touch with her estate or family or yeah. similar to how you did with Strayhorn? Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to meet her sons. Okay. They're great people. And, okay. uh, they've Are they done out here. Like, no, I don't know um, anything about her. Okay. Yeah. It used to be in LA, but, um, I believe, I believe in Europe right now, oh. like Rome, Switzerland, something like that. Not, not a bad shift. Not like, bad at all. Not a bad shift. Like if you're not going to yeah. be in LA, Rome doesn't suck. No, yeah. it does not. <laughs> it totally does not. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like I have a bit of a way, you know, ahead, but um, that's cool, man. That's, that's kind of the journey that I want to take with that, you know. Yeah, that's exciting. That's exciting. And the bass will always be a core part of what I do. That's the thing, though. The bass is always going to be there, a solo voice, a melodic part, like a supportive role, all of the above. The bass is going to be in the foreground in the mix. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this, dude. And remind me yeah. about Verbato. I want to come. I want to come check that out. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And, I'll, I'll text you. Uh, yeah, please do. And definitely let me know as that Hepburn suite gets closer. I want to yeah. have you back on and talk about how that turned out. So we, yeah, that would we, be really we got, fun. We got, we got where it is now, and we'll be able to revisit this conversation after it gets finalized. And we'll see yeah. the trajectory in the middle. Hopefully soon enough, we won't be standing around and go sitting around and cane, with canes and <laughs> yeah, yeah, long yeah. beards and <laughs> stuff. No, when you when know. I get to that age, man, I'm going right to the electric scooter. I don't think I'm even going to mess with the cane. It's basically just like a go-kart. You know, yeah. I'm going right to the scooter. Yeah. We got to so. find a way to play upright like that yeah. too, you yeah. know? <laughs> right. Exactly. So right, yeah, man. it'll be sooner than that. So yeah. Perfect. Perfect. All right, man. We'll be in touch. All right, Ryan. Thank you so much, man. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I can't do it anymore, man. I used to have this I used to have this solid like 80s rocker voice guy character. I don't think I have it anymore. I can't do it. Well, all right. Like I can't I can't, you know. You just belt. Well, all right. And it'd be the 80s guy. Uh, I can't do it anymore. I lost I lost the mojo. I lost the mojo. That was my talk with Mr. Marlon Martinez. I love his commitment to how thorough he gets. Like if he's, if, when he's digging into Billy Strayhorn, he's going to connect with the estate of Billy Strayhorn. And when he's, when he's getting into the, the work and life and artistry of Audrey Hepburn, he's going to connect with the, the people that are running the estate and family members and all that stuff. I think it's, I love how thorough he is and how it kind of roots it in this place of honesty and, and genuineness and, um, What's the other word I'm looking for? Just kind of integrity. That's the word I'm looking for. It rooted in integrity. Uh, so that's really that's really inspiring to me. Uh, thank you, thank you, Marlon. 
and I'm really excited to hear more uh, from the big band. I'm definitely excited to hear more from the big band when the uh, when the stuff about Audrey comes out. <laughs> that's uh, that's not going to be the title of his record. I don't think. I don't think it's going to be called Stuff About Audrey. I almost suggested on the episode that he just cover Breakfast at Tiffany's. Remember that? Remember that tune from the '90s? What's the name of that band? Deep Blue Something. I think that was the name of that band. I know. I know the drummer of that band. I used to play with the drummer of that band. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to sing it. I already failed like being an 80s guy at the, at the beginning of this clip. But I'm not going to sing Breakfast at Tiffany's. But you remember that tune from the 90s? I can't play it. But, but I withheld. I withheld. I didn't say it. I didn't say it. That's all I got for this one, folks. If you're enjoying the Bay Shed podcast, please hit subscribe wherever you are listening to it. You know, you know, tell everybody you know about it. Let's get them all listening. How about that? Huh? That's all I got for this one, folks. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And I will catch you on the next one in a minute.